there was a trend towards improving or increasing protein upcycling over time. And a lot of that has been the result of a greater incorporation of byproducts into cattle feeding systems and less reliance on corn. A whole new era of communication in the beef industry is coming. Now you have the brightest minds of the global beef industry right in your pocket. And what's best? You can listen to all of them while driving to the farm, traveling, or running errands. It's never been this good, and it's never been this simple. The Beef Podcast Show is only possible with the support and trust of innovative companies like Healthy Farms by Bioverse, your manure management experts. Contact us for time and labor-saving solutions. Welcome to the Beef Podcast Show, a weekly podcast where you'll find cutting-edge insights and everything that's working in the global beef industry. Welcome to the Beef Podcast. I'm one of your hosts, Brandy Buzzard, and it's my pleasure to bring you the trending issues and topics with the best and brightest minds of the beef industry. Today, we have Dr. Tryon Wickersham, Professor of Animal Nutrition in the Department of Animal Science at Texas A&M University. Dr. Wickersham's research focuses on improving the sustainability of beef cattle production by incorporating novel co-products into cattle diets and describing nitrogen metabolism in beef cattle. His lab recently quantified U.S. beef production system's capacity to upcycle protein, allowing consumers and stakeholders to understand more clearly the role of beef in healthy and sustainable human diets. Dr. Wickersham has received numerous teaching awards, which include the Association of Former Students Distinguished Achievement Award for teaching at the university level in 2013 and the college level, and was named a curriculum fellow by the Center for Teaching Excellence in 2017. Dr. Tryon Wickersham and his family, Aaron and two daughters, Catherine and Lydia, live on a small Angus ranch that they run with his parents near Curtin, Texas, just east of College Station. Welcome, Dr. Wickersham. Thank you for having me today. We are very excited to have you here and to jump in into all of the sustainability-focused content. So just to get started with, can you tell us a little bit about yourself and how you got in the beef industry and how you, about your journey so far? So I grew up in Nebraska and Colorado and have been around livestock my entire life and didn't necessarily plan on staying in agriculture for a career, but college led me to the animal science department. I think that was the first time I ever interacted with professors at any level, which is pretty common for most people. And really liked the opportunity that being a professor provides in terms of being able to impact young people, work with beef cattle, think about nutrition and science in general. Essentially just kept going to school for long enough that they gave me three degrees. So it worked out well. I think that that's so true. You said that, that you didn't intend to I think you said you didn't intend to work in agriculture, but then you went to school and just kept happening. And I feel like that happens to a lot of young people who grow up in agriculture and they think I might do something different. And then we realize, Oh, we really do like this. We're going to, we're going to stick with it for the, for perpetuity. So I think just also growing up when I grew up, it wasn't necessarily uh, a good time to be in the beef industry. If you look the year I graduated from college was the low point for the cow-calf profitability. Mm. So there was a lot of incentive not to go into agriculture, but I didn't listen very well. Went into cow-calf nutrition anyway. I think it's worked out pretty well despite that. So we're glad that you stuck with it for sure. Um, I just want to jump right into sustainability because I personally am really passionate about sustainability and I do a lot on my platforms about in terms of advocacy for sustainability um, not anywhere in all near as long as you, but for several years now. And so 
protein upcycling is a huge component of beef and sustainability. And can you explain for us why this is so important and what your research has shown? I know you've discovered a lot and you've been doing research for a very long time, but are there maybe three big points about protein upcycling that you can share with us? Well, I think in the similar way, the protein upcycling was an accidental thing for the lab. Um, we've mainly worked on protein supplementation and forage utilization and feeding novel co-products, uh, mainly distiller's grains, which isn't novel anymore. But we've worked with lots of different things, algae, different cotton byproducts, biodiesel byproducts as well. And we were on a project for the algae group. A lot of the swine nutritionists and the poultry nutritionists and the aquaculture folks were giving us a hard time on the beef cattle side because our feed conversions never look quite as good as theirs. We really started thinking about why that is, and they started sharing their diets. And if you look at a fish diet, the fish diet can be over 40% crude protein. Mm -hmm. And most of that protein could come from comes from a source that we could actually eat as people. So I started thinking a lot about how's, how could we demonstrate to consumers the value that beef cattle bring to humans. And it's not a novel discovery. I gave a presentation one time on the protein upcycling in our own department. And one of the faculty members said, everybody knows this. I think the challenge is everybody involved in beef cattle has a knowledge that beef cattle perform a unique service or a valuable service to us by taking low quality diets and converting them into something that's amazing from its nutritional value, but it's also really tasty mm -hmm. and is a product people like to consume. And so I think what we did when we did the protein upcycling work, net protein contribution work was quantify something that we know. We put a number to something that everybody knows we do, but we hadn't really quantified that number. Mm -hmm. And I think it's mainly important because we need to be able to tell the consumer what value we're bringing. So they're familiar with the value we bring from an eating experience and a quality experience. I think they're less familiar with the nutritional value beef brings to the table. There's kind of been an anti-beef message from the nutritional value. And I think beef councils across the country are working really diligently to make sure dietitians and doctors see the value of beef as part of, as part of the human diet. Yeah, absolutely. But then what value do we bring to society in terms of using these ag co-products and using grass that you and I can't consume and converting that to beef? So when we accidentally kind of started thinking about that, we found some great data out of Europe and some great ways of thinking, just started applying those to U.S. beef production systems described protein upcycling. That was probably the hardest part was figuring out what to call it. We landed on protein upcycling and that seemed to stick. Yeah. So that's been a lot of fun to see. It's fun to see something you sat in your office and thought about for a few days actually stick, make it into industry publications that people actually read about. That's very cool. I did not, I have to admit, I did not know that your research group was in chart, like created that term, you know, really like you you did the research you were the first person to think this is this is what the goal of this is protein upcycling this is what we're trying to quantify and i think that's very cool that you started that we got it from hgtv you know the whole upcycling of you know yeah. pallets and those kind of things adding value to something that doesn't have a lot of value that's what we think of when we think of grass 
or agricultural co-products. There's just, they're valuable to beef cattle, but they're not that valuable to us as humans. So let's describe that as a positive that beef cattle bring to society. That's really interesting. So doing all that research from the very beginning, what year was that that you kind of started that process? Uh, so we started really thinking about it, I want to say in 2016, I had agreed to give a presentation on the value of forage from a protein standpoint. That's when we first started having those thoughts. And then we had a graduate student, Jessica Gilreath now, who's left Exam. She finished. So that's a good thing. Um, she did all the actual work. And the big joke is the faculty members, Dr. Sawyer and myself, spend about just a little bit of time thinking about it, then someone gets to spend three years <laughs> thinking about thinking about something we thought about for a little bit. Yeah. It's a lot of fun though. Yeah. So from that, you know, that research kind of initially started in 2016. I mean, what was the was there any big surprise that came out of that for you that even you who's worked in this space for a long time that, that you were just kind of taken aback, thought, whoa, I didn't expect to see that. I mean, were there any surprises for you basically? I thought, I think if you would have asked me, I would say we would probably break even that the exchange would be a one for one for every unit we put into the system. We get a unit of human edible protein out or a unit of value out. I think that would have been the expectation we had was kind of a, we're going to break even on this deal. What we found is consistently beef cattle provide more value than the extract. The number we use probably most is around three times as much. Oh, okay. So, we get basically 3x out of the system versus what we put in. And so that was that was real encouraging. It was, uh, this is a real positive message. and We can share this method, message with consumers. And the other thing I think that has been encouraging is when we did the feedlot project with Cactus Feeders, they helped us with the data. They helped provide the data for the project because we didn't have that kind of data is that a lot of feed yards without thinking about protein upcycling or ever considering it, there was a trend towards improving or increasing protein upcycling over time. And a lot of that has been the result of a greater incorporation of byproducts into cattle feeding systems and less reliance on corn. So that's probably the thing that was most surprising. So just so I'm, I'm understanding to, and to clarify both for myself and the, our audience so whatever we put into beef production from a co-product standpoint, from all products or just from co-products, you get three times out what you put in. Could you just clear? I, basically, I want you to clarify again, because I think that's a fabulous point that we as an industry can be sharing out really broadly. So specifically what we're looking at when we do the protein upcycling is there's really two factors. And the first factor is how much human edible protein you put into the system. So that would be protein you and I could consume. And in most beef cattle diets, that's corn. Mm -hmm. And so that's what we're looking at. And then the other component is the protein quality ratio. And that's how good a job does the amino acids in that protein source do of meeting human protein requirements. And so corn has a really relatively poor amino acid profile. It's not a great source of amino acids. As any swine nutritionist will tell you, you know, they have to add a lot of amino acids. You have to add soybean meal to make that a viable option. When we look at beef. Lysine. I think that's a big one for pigs is lysine. Yes. I think. yes. And so what we're trying to do then is basically you look at 
how much protein you had to feed them to get it or how much the conversion efficiency, how much you get out. And then you look at the quality ratio difference. So what happens to the amino acid profile? And whenever we feed animals any source of protein, the amino acid quality goes up. If we feed it to chickens or pigs or catfish, the, the value of those amino acids go up, which makes sense. It's a meat source. It's fairly high protein mm-hmm. or it is high protein, high protein quality. And then we look at the conversion efficiency. The advantage beef cattle have over other production systems or other species is we don't feed them a lot of human edible protein. So most right. of the protein we feed them comes from sources you and I don't want to consume. That's a, in contrast to pigs and chickens. Like beet pulp and carrot skins. Right, and distillers grains and yeah. hay and silage. And so We feed a lot of, uh, well, not at the moment. We don't, but we usually incorporate a lot of DDGs into our rations uh, because we live about eight miles from an ethanol plant. So it's rather convenient to get to get a hold of those. We live a long ways from an ethanol plant here in College Station, and we still feed a lot of distillers grains because they work as a, they're a nice feed ingredient for us. And price-wise, they're still competitive, even though they have to ride a train or a barge to get here. Mm-hmm. I mean, I guess that speaks to the, the availability and the price. If you can get them all the way down there and you're far away, far away from them, they're still pretty affordable. So um, while we're on the topic of co-products, and things that humans don't want to eat. You know, you've you've mentioned a lot in your bio and then also just on this call that incorporating novel diets into novel co-products into diets helps overall be sustainability. What is the most interesting co-product and or ingredient that you've seen make a significant difference in protein upcycling? So I'll answer the question two ways. Okay. Um, <laughs> From a protein upcycling standpoint, the one that has made the biggest difference to the beef industry is um, any corn byproduct, just because the overall prevalence of those in finishing diets. So when we look at protein upcycling, almost all of the human edible protein we feed is in the finishing diet. Cow-calf, there's not a lot. Stock animals, there's a little bit, but generally not very much. Where we feed human edible protein is in the finishing phase. And since 2006, the amount of byproducts we put in those diets has increased pretty dramatically and continues. It's probably leveling off. The rate of increase is slowing down. But the amount of that we put in the diets just replaces a lot of human edible protein, a lot of calories that would have previously been edible with those byproducts. So that's by far the one that's had the biggest impact uh, on the protein upcycling message. But there's others that aren't nearly as novel or we don't think about. But a lot on the cow-calf side, we feed a lot of co-products to supplement our cows. Cottonseed meal would be the biggest one in this part of the country that there's really not a lot of other uses for other than feeding it to cattle. So that has a big impact on the protein upcycling side. The most interesting feed ingredient we fed it hasn't made an impact yet. There's maybe some potential there is we've been doing some stuff with soldier fly larva with Texas oh. state university. So Texas state has been sending a number of students over here to Texas A&M and we've been working on some research together. That's been a lot of fun. It's interesting. We'll see what happens, but that's probably the most interesting co-product we've been working with recently. Oh uh, yeah. That's really interesting. Soldier fly larva. Are those, I mean, how is that? 
what's that a co-product from? Like what? So basically the plan is long-term would be you can feed them waste and they'll grow and then they form a fairly high quality protein that you could use to feed cattle or other species. Cattle's just the one we've been evaluating. So you're feeding the soldier fly larva waste and then... No, we're feeding... Well, we have fed that too. But we're feeding the soldier flies themselves, their, their larva. But you're feeding them waste to grow. They're growing on waste. Okay. I'm just trying to figure out, like, what are they a, bi- what are they a byproduct of? <laughs> right. They're not really a byproduct as much as they might be a product or a way of disposing of waste. Right. Well, and that waste disposable or waste disposal, that makes a lot of sense because I'm sure you're very familiar with how much food waste there is in the United States. So, um, so that, that's very interesting. Definitely had not heard of that, but that is really interesting. It's been a lot of fun with them. We've enjoyed working with Texas State. So it's been good. Very cool. Really cool. Uh, you learned something. Not you didn't, but I learned something every time I do one of these podcasts. So that's, that's really interesting. Um, also on some of your research, I've noticed I was reading up on your work that you've quantified or you're working on quantifying the differences between boss indicus and boss taurus cattle in terms of their urea cycling. And so can you explain for our audience what you're expecting out of that and then what that means for the general beef industry? Because obviously you know, most people aren't up to date on all the most recent research and it takes a while for it to trickle down through extension and things like that. Yeah, for sure. So, um, we did, this is a long answer to your question. That's okay. We did the protein upcycling. Um, you might say it was like a, a side junket or a side interest, um, mainly because we saw a need to fill a gap in our understanding and the beef industry's understanding and science's understanding of what beef cattle do. Uh, but what I'm trained to do or what I did my PhD on is nitrogen metabolism in cattle consuming low quality forage. And so what we, as a project I have thought about my entire career, we got funding from the USDA a few years ago to look at it. What we're trying to do is look at the differences. So how much nitrogen do boss indicus cattle or Brahmin is the model we're using recycle um, versus boss Taurus. And we're using Angus for the model. So I'll talk about them as Brahmin and Angus because it's a lot easier to say Brahmin and Angus than it is That's to fine. say <laughs> their species fine. names. Um, what we're expecting to find, and we've dabbled with it over the years a little bit, is Brahmin cattle are generally less responsive to protein supplementation than non-Brahmin cattle. So if you have a low quality forage and they're consuming it and you want to improve performance or increase intake and digestion and you provide them a supplement, they generally don't respond as much to that supplementation as an Angus would respond. And there's two reasons. Well, there's probably one of the reasons we think that's happening is they maintain a higher ammonia concentration. So if you think back to rumen nutrition or basic animal nutrition, the rumen, the reticular rumen contains lots of microbes, lots of bacteria, protozoa, and fungi, and they need a source of nitrogen to grow to be able to utilize the cellulose and the low quality forage. And so if the Brahmins can provide or maintain a higher rumen ammonia concentration, those microbes have more nitrogen with which to synthesize enzymes, grow and do those things. And we think we're, they're able to do that because they maintain, they conserve more nitrogen uh, 
using their kidneys, basically maintain a higher plasma urea nitrogen, don't excrete as much nitrogen. And so basically are saving that or trying to use it. And it kind of makes sense if you think about where they came from and what they were selected to perform on. They're selected to perform on a low quality diet, a lot of C4 grasses, not a lot of protein. I'm a lot different than Europe or uh, the British Isles where most of the cattle we use in the United States come from. So what we've been doing, I have amazing graduate student, Jody Cox. She's been working for a number of years now on this project. And so basically what we're doing is we have two populations, an Angus set, a Brahmin set, and we've been feeding them low-quality forage and looking at how they respond to supplemental protein and then measuring their nitrogen use, how, they're, how effectively they're utilizing nitrogen. Um, she's in the middle of analyzing the data. So far, everything we thought would happen has basically happened. We're just quantifying it better. That's the like, cattle. <laughs> yeah, that's good to know. It's good I when it works, it right? Works out that way. <laughs> yeah, it's a lot easier to explain when it matches. Uh, but the Brahmin cattle are responding less. The Angus cattle are responding more. It seems to be fitting. But most importantly, what we want to do is actually quantify that so we can build it into the animal feeding systems. And so if we look globally, there's a lot of Boss Indicus cattle in the world, but most of our beef cattle nutrition systems are based on Boss Taurus cattle. And so we want to help them help reduce overfeeding or underfeeding of nitrogen because both are expensive, right? If you overfeed nitrogen, that's an environmental cost as well as a cost of the supplement. You're just spending money and they're excreting it. And if you underfeed, you're maybe not going to get the performance responses you want. So we'd like to help them get better more closely of the actual work would be like precision. So ultimately what we want to do is be able to allow greater precision in diet formulation or supplementation, supplementation recommendations um, for all classes of cattle. And then the other thing we'd like to do by comparing the two subspecies, the Brahmin and the Angus, what it will allow us to do is get a better understanding of how what controls nitrogen metabolism, what controls your recycling, and then is there anything we can do dietary or genetically or management-wise to improve or increase nitrogen recycling and make cattle more efficient from a nitrogen perspective. We're starting to work on the microbial differences as well, just quantifying moon microbiome differences, having another young lady, Allison Fontenot, she's working on that particular slice of the puzzle. So just so I'm clarifying, or so I'm understanding correctly, Brahmin cattle, if they, so if they were to have more urea, the urea makes them utilize low forage quality better. Is that? So basically the urea, plasma urea or urea in their blood, blood urea nitrogen can enter the rumen and becomes ammonias hydrolyzed into ammonia. And then the microbes can use that ammonia. So the Brahmin cattle will have, they generally have higher plasma urea nitrogens. We believe this leads to greater nitrogen recycling, allowing them to meet their microbial requirements a little better. Okay. Well, that makes, it's just interesting how different species of cattle react to the same feedstuffs and same situations. But that is really interesting. And like I said, it's nice when the research outcomes are what you had thought they would be. It, it definitely does make it easier to write, to write about. It's been, and it's a lot more fun to talk about and think about, hypothesize the next steps. And she's done a good job and put in a lot of hard work. 
Yeah. That's uh, something when my husband was getting his PhD, he was, he told me, he's like, it's just getting a PhD is almost as much about how hard you're willing to work and how far you're willing to push yourself as it is all the other things that went into it. So, um, and watching him do that, I have a great appreciation for people who, uh, who go through and do that for sure. Okay. Dr. Wickersham, you were talking about low quality forage and you know, this is, this is quite a time to be working on low quality forage. As you know, there's a drought in about 40% of the U S right now. So I imagine people are using hay that uh, is not exactly what we call high quality. How did you get into that particular segment of research or work? Uh, I don't, I mean, I don't know that I woke up one day and realized I wanted to do low quality forage research. It was more, I really liked the cow calf side of the business the best. And the person I went to work for at Kansas State University was a low quality forage researcher and just really fell in love with the topic and thinking about it. And I think you know, it ties back to the protein upcycling concept. It's where we upcycle the best as we're taking this resource, this large amount of cellulose that contains very little protein. And we're allowing cows to maintain themselves, grow a calf on that low quality forage, utilize it. And I think extremely blessed as a country to have a large portion of the country capable of sustaining large ruminants, grazing systems and having those systems be reasonably profitable sometimes <laughs> um, for the producers out there. I think it's been, it is a privilege to work on that problem and to try and solve that problem to help those people be more profitable and sustainable and stay in business longer. As a country, I think it's a, we have this resource of grass that grass has been grazed by large ruminants since before humans arrived on the continent, even before 1492, the continent was settled. And we need to ensure that those large ruminants continue to be a part of that ecosystem. And kind of in my opinion, if we're going to have that ecosystem, we need to manage it well. And just the understanding we have of beef cattle and our ability to create more societal value from beef cattle versus just allowing it to be a vast open prairie that doesn't really produce a lot for us. Well, I think you're completely right about that. We, uh, I personally would like for that vast open prairie to stay intact because I live on it and um, our cows are there. Um, and I live right on kind of not far from the edge of the tall grass, the Flint Hills and the tall grass prairie, which as you know, is like the last remaining tall grass prairie on earth. I believe, I think I'm probably, we might get a listener that calls me out on that, but um, I think it's the last, the last tall grass prairie on earth. And um, yeah, it's really important. And I think some people forget that there was millions and millions of Buffalo on this land, not that long ago. And, and it, it was fine. It was pristine and, and things. And so, yeah, we absolutely. And, that, and the thing about those Buffalo is they produced methane too. So mm. Absolutely. And they didn't have the science behind them trying to figure out how to reduce the amount of methane they were emitting and, and think about how much, you know, how far we've come since then. Um, you recently said in the video, since we're kind of talking about sustainability and, and future here, you recently said in a video that I found online, um, and the video was called What Sustainability Means to Me. And what you said in that was that sustainability is a future problem trying to use today's solutions and that we need to lean on technology more in the future, in the future, to continue our efficiency. 
which I think is a really functional way to define sustainability. It seems there's lots of different um, definitions out there. And, you know, we as an industry, as an agriculture industry, as a more specifically a beef industry, probably have a different definition than what like maybe the average consumer has. Um, so I guess my question is kind of like when you are talking to people about protein upcycling and sustainability and you interact, like come across someone who hasn't really bought into it yet um, or doesn't necessarily believe it's something we should be working on in the beef industry. What do you say to them? Do you say something with that functional um, definition or do you speak to them more like on a cellular level about the importance of research and things like that? So I think in talking with producers, the thing I generally point out is over the last, we'll say, 100 years, we've made tremendous progress in beef cattle production from an efficiency standpoint. And that efficiency has led to our ability to stay in business from a profitability standpoint. But if you go and look at it for lots of the measures of sustainability, sustainability has increased as a result of that emphasis on performance. We did a, Jessica did a, project or worked on a project where we looked at evaluating different ways of mitigation or trying to improve sustainability. And all of the mitigation strategies that improve sustainability also were predicted to improve profitability. And so I think sustainability came to the beef industry as a loaded word and almost a word that we hear as you're not doing things right. You need to not do those things. And I think what we really need to look at sustainability as is an opportunity to explain to people what we actually do and why we make the decisions we make using other words other than profitability. Mm -hmm. So um, I tell the students, we talk a lot about methane because um, the students in class, even if they don't have a beef background, are aware of methane that methane comes from beef cattle. So it's a nice place to start. And I'm like, you might think methane's bad from a global warming perspective, and you might be totally bought in on that. And that's good. Like if that's why you don't like methane, that's fine. You might be a beef cattle producer and you don't like that discussion, but you recognize that methane represents an energetic cost to the beef cattle industry. And we're basically losing energy and it's reducing animal performance. It's reducing growth. So we both actually have the same goal. Right. We're both trying to reduce methane. And if we reduce methane, both things happen. And if the consumer wants to talk about it from a sustainability standpoint, and my neighbor wants to talk to me about it from a profitability standpoint, I think we need to be better, be ready to have that conversation both ways. And I think at some level, it's up to academics to thread that needle and extension specialists to thread that needle and help producers understand that we're trying to help you stay in business, right? If you're trying to make a more sustainable beef product, that's trying to stay in business, um, both because you need a consumer to buy the product and hopefully the sustainability aspect, the choice, the change you make in your operation. I mean, it has to make you more profitable if you're going to make that choice, right? It has to enhance profitability. The other thing I'd say in the last year or so, I've had the opportunity to talk to a number of dietitians mm -hmm. and I've enjoyed the opportunity to visit with dietitians. I went to Montana last summer, summer, yeah, last summer, and I was meeting with graduate students who were aspiring dietitians. Mm -hmm. And I think I know 
It was the single most impactful presentation I've ever given um, because they really wanted to hear what the beef industry was doing. And they're young enough that they would still ask questions, right? They're used to the professor-student dynamic. Right. And so it was not just me talking to them, preaching to them, but they had questions and they would ask those questions and they wanted honest answers and they were willing to listen to those honest answers. And I think there was a lot of progress made in that conversation. And anytime I've had conversation with dietitians or doctors or nutritional influencers or whatever it might be, they just really want to know what we're doing and why we make those decisions. I think the better job we do of explaining that to consumers, the more apt they are to want to consume our product. I think that's an important thing to do. That is really interesting the way you juxtapose those. The producers, we want to be profitability or we want to be profit. Right. So sustainability is like economic, social and environmental it's, it's three pronged. And then on the consumer side, they want methane reduced. Um, so the goal, the goal is methane reduction. It's just using a different word to describe it, depending on what party you're in. And I think that's, I hadn't really thought of it that way is that we, that is a common, you know, the commonality is that, is that both producers and consumers want the methane reduced. We're just describing the problem differently or describing the solutions differently when it's the same solution. And so that I think I just think that's really interesting. And I, I mean, I think most sustainability things are that way, whether it's antibiotics or animal welfare. It's just thinking about, you know, what is the thing that we have in common and how can we move to an understanding more rapidly without someone telling us we have to do it? I think the beef industry is the more proactive we are in getting there and hearing what people have to say we have greater control over how we decide to, I mean, I mean, most producers I know are also really concerned about the environment, right? They care about their ranch. They care about the land. They care about the water. They care about all of those things. Environment might have a more of a local scale to them than maybe a consumer thinks, but if they're doing their part to take care of their small portion of the world and all of the ranchers do their part, that provides a really good story for the beef industry. So I thought it was really important when you brought up the, um, you said the single most important presentation you'd given was to those dietitians. And I think that that, that just speaks volumes because people care, obviously care a lot about their health and dietitians are an important part of school nutrition, hospital nutrition, people's personal nutrition. And so that just, I think that speaks volumes that that's your, of all the presentations you've given in your career, that that's one of the most important um, based on the fact that the impact that those people are going to have as they go out into their careers and they advise people's lifestyles. And so thank you for doing that work because that's not easy and it's not necessarily fun to stand up in front of the audience and, and have them ask you questions about like, how do you, uh, how do you eat an animal that you raised from birth? You know, those are not easy questions to answer, but um, so, you know, thank you for doing that. I think uh, it's something producers and should do more of and academics should do more of. I, I mean, they grew a lot from that presentation. I probably grew more. I always say if I can get an audience without cowboy hats, that's a better audience <laughs> for making a change, right? Like right, it's, a, right. it's a good thing. Yeah, it's definitely, I mean, the goal was not to talk to uh, preach to the choir, right? It's to, to reach those outside of our kind of like echo or echo chamber. Um, so that's fabulous. And thank you for Thank you for stepping away from the low quality forage for for a while when you go and speak to those groups, because um, that's that's vitally important. It's time 
for our famous three. Um, well, we are about out of time, but we kind of have our three rapid fire. I call them rapid fire, but they're not rapid fire. I need to think of a different name for them. But these are the last questions we ask every guest. You can it's call them exit questions. Exit questions. That's better. It's not a, yeah, ex, I'm just going to change it to exit questions. So our first exit question is what is your favorite book, re, beef related book or resource? It, and it doesn't have to be something you wrote, um, but just something that's beef focused. Like. From a nutrition standpoint? No, just in general. Is there like, like there's the book, there's the ranching for profit books. There's. Oh, okay. Well, I was going to say Lonesome Dove. The Lonesome Dove doesn't count probably because no, it's not really about I, beef. Probably not, but that might work with the next question. But okay. Probably, the yeah. book I probably use the most is the 1996 NRC. <laughs> I haven't had the answer yet. That's good. That's definitely a, a unique one. So, okay. So what book not related to the beef industry are you currently reading or your favorite non-beef industry book? book I'm currently reading is, there's four of them. It's Winston Churchill's The History of English-Speaking Peoples. Oh. I just want to learn more about the people. Right. It, I don't know a lot. So it's really nice because it started 55 years before Christ was born. Mm-hmm. So it goes all the way through World War II, I believe. It's good. It's good so far. Yeah, I have a I have a Winston and Churchill quote book. I like books of quotes from famous people. There's some real zingers in there. I was going to say my daughter's memorizing his speech that he gave to Parliament, basically call the world to action before World War II. It's really mm. good. Yeah, I should probably go read that in its entirety instead of the little two sentences. <laughs> Okay. And our final exit question that rolls so much better off the tongue than rapid fire. So our final exit question is what trait do you find admirable in others that has helped them reach success? This is a trait. Um, people be like, what do I need to be, what do I need to do to get into graduate school? What's important in graduate school? And I think it's probably more important just in life because they want it to be grades or they want it to be some internship or they want it to be. And the thing that I would say is persistence. And so when young people have persistence, you could look at it as grit, whatever you want to describe it as, just the willingness to not give up. That will take them a long, long ways in their academic journey. And then as I've watched it in their life journey as well. So persistence or grit would be two things I would like my daughters to possess. I agree. I think that's a pretty strong character trait can get you through a lot of things, whether you're in academia, personal life or other careers. I think that's absolutely agree with that. And that is a great way to end the show on a high note like that. Um, That is all we have for today. Thank you, Dr. Wickersham for all sharing all your knowledge and your experience and, um, definitely some things that I learned about uh, co-products and protein upcycling. I'm going to look at soldierfly larva, larva in a brand new way now. Uh, so thank you for sharing all that and for all the work that you do and for joining us on the Beef Podcast Show. If people want to learn more about you or your research, is there a website or social media profiles that you would like the, to direct them to? We can You can say it now and then we can put it in the show notes as well. So just the Department of Animal Science is probably the best way to get a hold of me. Google Scholar is the best way to see what we, we do. So There you go. So that is the Department of Animal Science at Texas A&M University and Google Scholar for those of you who want to learn more about Dr. Wickersham's research. So thank you very much again for joining us. 
And for those of our, our audience, we will see you next time. Thank you. Thank you.